Good morning, VCF. It's good to see you again. At least, at least see you through the camera. I hope you're doing well. And I want to share with you a word that would be a continuation of last week when we were talking about enlargement. Um, so please turn with me to uh, Psalm 81, that um, very famous psalm in which uh, God says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We'll sing it. Uh, we'll, we'll read it from verse 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout to God for, to the, for God, for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine. The sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, which is the feast of, um, tabernacles, Sukkot. For it is a statute for Israel. A rule for the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a la- language I had known, not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you in the waters of Meribah, which we talked about last week. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel. If you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And we are talking about different ways in which God takes us through the wilderness and enlarges us so that we can be filled up more with God's power and His person. And um, last week we spoke about the Second thing that God said that he had done, I tested you in the waters of Meribah in verse 7. In, um, but before that, he says, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that secret place of thunder because God speaks out of that thunder. It speaks out of that secret place. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. And if you want to turn with me, you can turn with me to um, Exodus chapter 19 and we'll see that incident in which God... Um, spoke to the children of Israel and spoke in thunder to such an extent it was awesome. So awesome that it made the children of Israel very afraid of him. But it gave them an, uh, a genuine vision that was bigger than a God who was like them. Yeah, It was a God who spoke in thunder. Um, I'm going to look at a few verses um, in uh, Exodus chapter 19. We'll actually look at it from verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. So he's going to, he was coming to speak in person, yeah? The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The language in which God was speaking to him was not actually words, but thunder. We see that also in John chapter 12 when, when God revealed himself and, uh, uh, in, in the life of Jesus and God spoke in thunder and people didn't know what was going on. They didn't, they, most of them couldn't hear the words. Most of them were, were think, just heard thunder. Some, some of them thought it was angels, but there was this mysterious way in which God was speaking in which God spoke himself, you know? And um, 
I mean, we can call this an epiphany. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. So that God, by His very nature and manifesting Himself, was protecting the children of Israel by saying, we need a distance between you and me because if you come too close, not because I'm malicious, but because of the fact that I'm God, because my godness is so powerful, so infinitely uh, um, um, awesome, that you would not be able to survive my godness. You have to have, be at a distance before, before me, and you have to purify yourself and do all kinds of stuff for several days in order for you to even survive my presence. Not because God is malicious, but because of the fact that God is God. Yeah? We would not be able to take his, his godness because of the fact of his infinite uh, uh, power and his holiness. And so what God was say, saying to, to Moses is this, I will speak to you in thunder. I will speak to you in a way that is more in keeping with who I am rather than in a reduced form which we call words. And so there's a way in which God's answered them in a secret place of thunder. Part of that enlargement for the wilderness is the way in which God reveals himself to us. Now, we, are, we tend to be people who like to talk to God the way the children of Israel want to talk to God, in, a, in God in a reduced form, you know? God reduced to, the, to, to, to words or, or to formulas. And so, um, in chapter 20, um, after the uh, Ten Commandments are given, if we look at verse 18, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood afar and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Yeah? Just, they just couldn't take it. Their, 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 their frame, their human frame was too flimsy to be able to, 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 to abide God's presence. So Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And what God, Moses is saying is this, God wants to make himself known to you and come as a little closer, in a, in, in a way that's closer to his very person, rather than this reduced, diluted form that you are more prepared to have. But that, what does, it does is that His holiness revealed the fear of Him will cause you not to sin. It will cause you to live in the light of the fact that God is not just a small cipher that is diminished and you can pocket and pocket into your own desires. He's not, a, he's not your butler, but your buckler. And so what the people of, of God didn't want to do is they did not want to see God. I wonder whether you've had this experience. Many, many years ago, when I was... Uh, and I had just come to the Lord in, 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 a, in a more committed way, um, I wanted to seek God. And I wanted to have God reveal Himself to me in a way that was more, more tangible, more provable, so to speak. And I was told that if I seek the Lord with all my heart, He will be found of me. And so I decided to go on a fast. And this fast was not to get a breakthrough or, or to, to, to get some money or, or to get success or whatever. I was not praying for an outcome. I was praying that God would solidify His reality to me and in me. And so I began uh, fasting and praying. Uh, 
I was seeking after God and my heart really wanted to see God as He really was. I knew that, that God had to prepare my heart and so I just continued to pray. I didn't know what to do. I prayed all the English that I could pray and after I finished praying in English, all I could do is to just mumble before Him and just mumble before Him a kind of a, a, a sort of a, an, an, an unconscious bringing of myself towards Him uh, without any words, because I'd said all the words many, many times, repeated. And so I was in my fourth day, I believe. I was in my fourth day. Remember, it was not praying as an intercessory thing. It was just praying so that I could sort of see his face. Little did I know what I was asking for. And I remember there was a time, and I'm wonder, wondering whether some of you have experienced this, I, I was very sure that God would reveal himself and be real to anybody who sought him. I knew it. Jeremiah 33 verse 3. I knew it. And as I got closer to midnight, I began to be struck by the presence of God in such a way that I actually freaked out. I, got, I felt the presence of God so eerily close, so real, that I could feel in my own self a uh, I won't say it's a revulsion, but it's a reaction against that presence. I was so f- afraid. I was so terrified of God that I thought I could never, never get close to God because of the fact that it was so real. The whole room seemed to be charged with His presence. And I, 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 I got to tell you, I, you know, I just said, I better eat a snack right now and get out of the presence of God because the presence of God was so overpowering, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. I remember I was about 21 years old and I had just been filled with the Holy Spirit and I had been, uh, I had, uh, I had, uh, had a, like, a, like a conversion in my, my heart and I was very hungry for God. But I realized even then that God in His Godness is more than I could take. Have you experienced that? <laughs> so, he speaks in more than words, but there is this place in which God in His awesomeness is hidden from us because we couldn't take it. We couldn't take it. But here's the thing. God, as He revealed Himself to children of Israel, and the children of Israel uh, were trapped with Him in the wilderness, He still wanted to, re- to be with them. And so I'd like you to look at another passage of Scripture that tells about the tabernacle, right? about, the, about the booths that we are about to celebrate. Uh, and it's in Psalm 76. Psalm 76. And here is a place where you see the word sukkah um, mentioned. In verse 1, okay, we'll look at Psalm 76. In Judah, which means praise, yeah, in praise, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Now, I take this to mean not just a geographical, political entity called Judah, but the spiritual condition of praise. It is in this place of praise, of worship, that God actually is known. He reveals himself. In Judah, God is known. In praise, he is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode, and the word for abode is suk, sukko, okay? which is the, the, the term that is uh, uh, the same root and stem as um, sukkah or suk, 
uh, of plural Sukkot. Sukkot is plural for Sukkah. Sukkah means booth or tent, tabernacle or tent. His abode, okay, his Sukkah, has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in, is in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted in this place, okay, there, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O Lord of God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is aroused? For the heavens have uttered judgment and the earth feared and was still when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. Now, Psalm 76 speaks about the fact that this God, the God who spoke out of the thunder, of the secret place of thunder, from which, the thunder from which he operates his miracles, from which he, he operates in his own being, in his own person, transferred his presence amazingly to this Sukkot. And the amazing, the astounding thing in Psalm 76 is this, that God can be known, experienced, and manifest in awesome reality in this flimsy booth, this flimsy tent he calls the sukkah. The sukkah is not just a tent for us to play around with. The sukkah is a place where God establishes His holiness. He establishes His secret place of thunder and the sukkah is the place in which he destroys the enemies and he does spiritual warfare. So I want to put it to you that actually as we look at this Feast of Tabernacles, we are looking at God's desire to establish his power, to establish his reality in the flimsiness of our own existence, in the impermanence of our own situation, in the insecurity of our position, and in the oppressed situation that we often find ourselves in. He has ordained, in John chapter 1, to tabernacle among us so that he would, in all his grace and truth and his glory, be known in this flimsy place that is our existence. This goes totally against our own human uh, desire and our own t human tendency that wants to cause, uh, to, to, to expect that God will establish himself in Fort Knox. No, he actually establishes himself in the flimsiness of our weakness and uh, this is where we want to explore. How does God make himself strong in this place? In Judah, God is known. How does God establish his place among us in the frame that we as a church have? in the frame, in the, in the tent that is your existence and my existence. Can you imagine? That God in His humility and His love has deigned to actually come down. He, has, uh, he has, has come down so that He can dwell with us. Many of you would say, oh, I don't feel it. I just don't see anything. And many of us will think, I hate this situation. I hate the wilderness experience that I'm in. I hate the fact that I have no security, that my roof... Uh, has holes in it, and I can see the stars from here. I hate the fact that it's impermanent. I hate the fact that I can't be established. Here it says, in Judah, God is known. And I want the first thing I want to say about this place, this place of this sukkah, sukkah that we have, this, this tabernacle or this, uh, this booth that God has 
deign to actually make his presence and dwell with us in, is that we begin to experience qualitatively, not spatially, but qualitatively, a change in us when we are a people of praise. Praise is really important for us to experience, acknowledge to God the way he is. Praise is something that starts not with our own agenda, but with God's agenda. God can only be known in the context of praise. That's why the old theologians in the, in the, in the medieval period, you, if you read their writings, their writings are just basically praise to God. All the deep and, 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 and profound uh, theology that you, you read them, you, you, will, you will not read it as theology. It's actually just praise to God. Because they understood that the proper way to think about God is not by thinking about God in our normal way in which our rationality controls the data, but the only proper way to, to actually connect with God or to know truth was, is to praise Him. Now, praise is something that's really hard for many of us. I see that sometimes even in, in, in praying with, with, with people, that we want to st- quickly get into the concerns that we have. But praise says, no, before you even approach those concerns, you need to know that I am the God whose being overshadows every other being, whose presence overshadows every other concern and every other, every other presence, so that when I am present, I do my work. I don't need you to sweat it out to pray for, pray, pray to me so that you can by your own, by dint of your own, um, uh, uh, bulldog will press me into, into having my arm twisted and doing what you want. No. The beginning part of the presence of God is when we actually disappear. We get out of the way. And when we, how do you do that? It comes when we start with praising God. Now, for many of us, praising God seems to be an absolutely useless activity. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't even allow me to name the, the concern that I have to God. God says, I don't need that. I, knew, I know that all before you, before you even came, came to me. I knew it from afar. I knew it before you knew your problem. I knew it before the concern became a concern. I knew it from, from time immemorial and time eternal. I, know, I, know, I don't need that. I need you to be in sync with me. And the only way you can be in sync with me is to praise me until you disappear. You praise me until your own point of view begins to disappear and I and you are filled with my point of view. When that happens, you praise from a different vantage point. The vantage point is not yourself, but it's from me. I came to your sukkah and I sukkahed over you so that you can have me in place of you, in place of your flesh, I mean, in place of your self. And only a person who's freed up in that way can find that he or she is freed up from the, from the gnawing insecurity of having to grab and hold on to and cling and sweat. You see, the Levites and the priests were not supposed to wear wool because God hates sweat. Sweat, sweatiness, is something that God wants to get rid of so that there will be rest in the presence of God. But there's something about the way in which we approach God often from a point of view in which we hope God will help us or God will do this for us, which He very well will. But you can actually experience God doing miracles in, in, in your life without actually knowing Him. Knowing Him requires that the point of view, the point, the integration point of the, of the knower is changed from the self to God himself. 
And so when that happens, God becomes the substance of our knowing, becomes subject in us and not just an object of our of our manipulation. And so in Judah, God is known. So I find that a lot of times for me, in order for me to get rid of that burden, which actually doesn't get released, released by my banging on God's door, the only way for me to, to, to get rid of the burden when I'm in prayer is to actually come before Him and let, offer a sacrifice of praise. A praise that doesn't begin with my good or my intention or my desire, but because of the fact that God is subject. He's the one that, that takes over. How about that? You start the day praising God, you carry on praising God, and don't intercede yet until God brings you to the mountain in which when you're interceding, you intercede out of a, out of a sense of rest. Now, that is easier said than done. I just said it. See how easy that was? But actually, what it means is this. There is a way in which we labor sometimes. We keep on praising Him. We just lift, cast our burden before the Lord. Keep casting the burden upon the Lord. Keep casting it upon the Lord again and again and again. A multitude of times until something sticks. And after a while, in that exercise, praise actually cleanses us. We don't know it. See, we think we're doing the, that rep- repetition is doing exactly the same thing in an identical way with an identical uh, um, effect. No. Praise that's repetitive is always a build-up of God's cure, of God's medicine, of God's power in us. We may be saying the same thing. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. And I can predict the next thing I'm going to say. Praise you, Lord. But in praise, what happens is that it becomes, God becomes bigger and bigger and bigger in us. When we worship the Lord, the words of praise that we give to God, God takes it, He does some divine power, puts some divine anointing on it, and He resonates it back to us. Before long, we begin to be filled in our mind with the very truths that we have praised Him with, but more. In Judah, God is known. And so I want, to, I, want, I want to say this, that the, the, the tent or the sukkah is not a way of just getting God to do stuff or getting protection. All that will come. It's more than getting his, his covering over us. It has to do with the fact that God, in His secret place of thunder, wants to bring the secret place of thunder into our lives, into our flimsy lives, in such a way that our hearts, our minds, our, our, our self is replaced by him. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Here's what I want to um, uh, um, encourage us to do. Praise him the next time you have your quiet time. Praise him until you feel lifted to the mountain. And you're lifted because you're not burdened by yourself. God becomes more. Praise is powerful. Praise is not just something we tell God. Praise is something in which as we give that to him, God brings it back to us bigger and supernatural. His abode, another word for sukkah, sukkah abode, is his lair. It's a lion's lair, the, his thicket. Yeah? So you can say his thicket or his lair, right? his lion's den, his den has been established in Shalem or Salem or, or Shalom. His, his, his war room has been established in the sukkah. His abode, this is where he does war. 
And so it may not may, may come as a bit of a surprise to some of us when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles in these terms, but really what we have here is a place in which from God, from God's um, um, dwelling, he, he, he launches war against our enemies, against the powers of the devil. That's why when Balaam caught a, caught a picture of the nation of Israel in their tents, he saw this vision of them and saw them as an army in tents, an army in formation in tents. He saw these tents, these, these, uh, these, uh, these, these uh, flimsy things as war places, places in which the enemy is defeated. And I want to say that this is in this place that God wants us to experience him in a real way, in a real way there. Because this, this, this sukkah is great to play in, bring your children on Saturday, do it, have your own sukkah in your garden and all that. But there is a more serious stuff, a thing that is that's supposed to be there. And that is in the presence of God, in the place of praise, God wants himself to be known as a warrior. It's in this place where God, not just spatially, but in our own existence, in our whole life, wants to establish a place and build up a place of strength and of, uh, of power here. It is in this war room, in this place, that God causes us to go to war against the devil. Not people, but the devil. Okay, so I, I, I have a few examples that I want to share with you th- that in which the warfare is done in prayer. Yeah? Um, some years ago, I was invited to, to speak at a con- conference um, with uh, some university students and uh, in southern in southern California, and um, I was looking forward to it. And um, just a few days before the conference start, started, um, the organizers were quite concerned. They rang up and they said, "We have a, a bit of an urgent call for you. Um, we just invited everybody, but uh, a, a large number of people, or a substantial number of people from the LGBTQ." Um, uh, the chapter in uh, Claremont have decided they want to come and they want to actually um, argue and to actually express their, 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 their um, unhappiness with uh, Christianity in this place. So he said, please be sensitive and be careful not to intimidate uh, them. And so I said, okay, I will, I will try my best. And it was in this place I, as I began to pray. And I got into sort of my prayer mode, my, 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 my place of prayer. And uh, I prayed for these ones. as prayed for these ones. They were not Christians. And, um, and I prayed. And I began to find that as I was praying, I found that there was a lot of intimidation that was being felt on both sides. And I could sense it, you know. Because you know why? I was feeling intimidated too. So as I prayed, I began to pray, and I began to praise the Lord, just praise the Lord, just until I could see God bigger than myself, bigger than the organizers, bigger than whoever was coming. It happened that, 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 on, on, that on that conference, there was going to be a record number of people who were coming, so I could feel a certain burden for, just because so many people had signed up. And as I began to pray, I began to feel the burden began to lift slightly. So, you know, we went to Catalina Island and we, and we, um, we, uh, we got on the boat and came. And um, um, 
as the, as the conference started, I could sense that from this group of people, about six of them, um, uh, quite a lot of uh, hostility. Yeah? So I tried to be friendly and all that. And then I could just continue to pray. And I found that if I looked at all the situation and there seemed to be some tension in the, in the conference, I would imbibe that tension. So I had to go into my own sukkah, so, so to speak, and to just go and pray and pray until I begin to feel such a love come, such a power of God, such love. I was not intimidated anymore. I was completely um, careless, careless about the whole thing. And I preached, and God began to move. And the more and more I prayed, the more and more I, 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 I preached, I found that what I was getting as I closed my eyes, in the rumbling of that thunder, wordlessly, I was feeling in me God's breakthrough, God's setting free of these ones. It was completely different from what I was hearing. It preached. Saturday night came. And God began to move in the, in the crowd. And demons began to be manifesting. And one, one or two demons were, I mean, uh, uh, students were experiencing like just screaming. And God was setting them free. And miracles were, were going to take place. And we finished it. And I could see there was a turn. How did I see it? I could see it because the language of thunder... The language of the Spirit was witnessing to me, but I had to keep my eyes closed to what was going on outside. Sunday morning, I gave another altar call. And you know what? The first people to respond, to receive Jesus Christ and to give their lives to God were all of these six ones. They rushed up to the, to the front and they just knelt down. The others were not kneeling down. They were just standing up. But these ones were kneeling down and they were worshipping the Lord and praising God. Then nobody told them to raise their hands. They just raised their, raised their hands. And at, the, and, and, and at the end of it, we had such a great time of fellowship. And they were sharing with me oh, how they felt before and how God spoke to them and how God was setting them free. And I spoke to every single one of them. And it was, it was amazing. On the trip home, this is quite a long trip on, on, the, on the ferry back to Catalina Island, they were there in the front praising God, worshipping God. And we were, we were all joining in with that. It was, it was amazing. Because there is a way in which we fight what Paul says. Not against flesh and blood or arguments or, or against uh, um, doctrinaire thoughts, but against principalities and powers. And this was something that was, 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 was being released. I will never forget that experience. I remember one time when I was um, in my office and praying. I remember as I was praying... I almost fell asleep when I was praying, but during the period I was falling asleep, suddenly just a particle, a thought just seemed to flash in my mind. That, and the thought was, it was kind of in words, but also a certain um, urgency that the robber had, uh, had entered the house. It's just like the robber had entered the house and my immediate thought was my parents' house. My parents are older, older, they were only... only um, both of them were staying in the house, the big house, and, um, and there was no security or anything like that. And I began to pray, and I just began to bind the strong man. I bind the spirit of robbery. 
And as I bound the spirit of robbery, I bound it until I felt released. I felt there was, I was free. There was a freedom there. And a few hours later, my mom called me and he said, do you, you know what happened? We came home and we found that our house was in a mess. The jewelry was out. The watches were out. Money was out. We had all these kinds of things. And nothing got stolen. Nothing was stolen. It seems as if some thieves had come into our house and found the things and then they must have been warned by someone or somebody must have, must have, must have intruded into their, in their, into their doings and they just ran away. And we looked and looked and looked for things that were lost and nothing was lost. Now, the sukkah is the place in which, as we see in Psalm 76, God wants to tabernacle over you and me and form a peculiar, sensitized relationship in which he can tell you and me his secrets from the secret place of thunder. You can't understand thunder. You can't read off the meaning of thunder just, just by listening to thunder. You have to enter into God and let go of words. Let go of, of your uh, cognitive, cognitive, rational, rationalistic analysis and let it go. And let God speak to you. And I don't know how to put it to, to you that somehow in this rumbling, God begins to impinge upon our hearts. Impressions, thoughts, ideas, even words. But it's in this place that God has a peculiar and a, and a, and a unique place. The place of prayer that He wants to establish. Watchman said, Negligence in prayer withers the inner man. Nothing can be a substitute for it, not even Christian work. Many are so preoccupied with work that they allow little time for prayer and hence they cannot cast out demons, even though God has given to us um, the authority. Prayer enables us first to inwardly overcome the enemy inside us and then outwardly to deal with him. Watch me. I like that. And so I want to encourage you that you examine your sukkah, you examine your prayer life, you examine your relationship with God, and relate to Him not just for what He can do for you, but for Him in and of Himself, face to face. Amen? All right, I want to talk to you a little bit further, um, and my last point. Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, last week, uh, we saw that God in the wilderness, having established His sukkah now, established His base of power in our lives, takes us through the wilderness in such a way that He is like the rock who follows us. When we go through the Meribah experiences of our lives, the places of disappointment, the places of lack, the places of insecurity, places of, uh, of uh, utter uh, um, um, hopelessness or helplessness, God is bringing us to the rock. Yeah? And so, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll go a little bit deeper in that, because there is, a, there is one particular obstacle to dwelling in your sukkah, or to experiencing the presence of God, the experiencing the nourishing of God that we must deal with today before we move on. Okay? Because I just feel led 
that we should talk a little bit about that. So it's a particular point, uh, and it may seem to you to be a little kind of disconnected with it, but I assure you that there is a serious connection. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For all the sukkah, for all the rock, for all the miracles, actually it didn't end well for them. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. For some reason, even though they were baptized into Moses, okay, they were baptized into, the, into, into, the, into Moses in the Red Sea, and they were baptized into God by the, by the cloud. You know, many people think that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the the baptism to the Red Sea has to do with the fact we die to ourselves, we die to, uh, to Egypt. And, uh, and, and being, being baptized under the cloud has to do with the fact that we are baptized or we die to ourselves and we are alive in the Spirit. We are, our life is in the Spirit. What, uh, what Paul is saying here is this, they were all baptized into this life, this life of God's presence in which they had no more agenda. Yeah? They were baptized into sukkah in that sense. They were baptized into the presence of God. What that means is this, they had, they had, the, the, the power of Egypt had, had no more hold upon them. Now, this is a picture of the New Testament in which in our life today, in our lifetime today, we've been baptized into God. What does that mean? That when Jesus died on the cross, He destroyed all principalities and powers. He destroyed your past. He destroyed your old identity. He destroyed everything that, were, that, that, that hindered you and held you back. He destroyed your sin. He destroyed the nature of sin in us, the nature of, of its power. Uh, upon us, so much so that we have all the resources to live like Christ lived. That's the baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism under the cloud, the baptism into, into Christ has to do with the fact that we die to ourselves. So much so that the power of addiction, the power of sin has no longer any hold upon us and we have now been baptized into the Spirit. That means that we have no life except the Spirit's life in us. And the Spirit is now given to us to not only fill us, but to overflow, baptizio. It's, like, it's just like the picture of a sunken ship with water inside and outside. It's and without measure. The Spirit is given without measure. What, he, what, what, what we are told here by Paul is this. The Old Testament wilderness experience was foreshadowing something that was much more real. No longer an analogy now. It's an actual real Holy Spirit coming upon us. Actual real power of sin and power of the devil being broken in our, in our lives. What Paul is saying is this. Those guys in the Old Testament, they experienced all, all the, 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 these, 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 these bread and, and water and these miracles, and yet it didn't end well for them. And he, what he was saying is this. For us, we have a greater covenant a greater covenant than the, than the old covenant. And we are now new beings. But it could also not go well with us. What could happen? What could go wrong when God has given to us the sukkah of His presence? What could go wrong that God has given us everything and yet 
we could act like we didn't have anything. And so it is on this point that I want to just rest uh, and we will close. Now these things, verse 6, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is talking about the time when they, uh, they demanded the golden calf and they worshipped the golden calf. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by sermons, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, lest everyone thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. It is possible to fall in the wilderness. No temptation has overtaken you and is not common, that is not common, common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape. You may not be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And this is, it's this point that I want to bring up which I feel is an important, an important one for us, because all that we have talked about is very positive, very wonderful about what God has done. But there is something that Paul was saying, I'm writing you to you all this so that you will desire, you will not desire evil. What? Is it possible for us not to desire evil? Really? You think just by reading all this, I will not desire evil? I may desire even, even more when I, when I see all these things, all the idolatry and all the getting up and to play and drinking and all that. Paul is saying, I write this to you so that you will not desire evil. What does he mean? He's saying that evil or idolatry has two components in it. The first component has to do with the fact that when they wanted a golden calf and Moses was up there in the mountain, they didn't know when he was coming back. They had no direction. They had no sense of what's next. They wanted some kind of certainty. Idol, idols give our things that we make for ourselves to make us sure to have security. You would think, you know, and we don't have time to, to look at it, that when Aaron took all the gold from their, their ears and noses and, and fashioned a golden calf and, and, and fashioned it from the fire, you would have thought they would think, how can you worship something that you yourself have made? How do, you, how do you worship that which you have made? But if you think about it, an idol is anything that we make that has to do with the best resources, the best thoughts, the best experience, the best technology we have, the best that we see, the best celebrities, the best minds, the best looks, the best makeup, the best clothes, the best cars, the best future, the best advertising, the best everything, and we make it ourselves, and then we trust in those things. Idolatry has to do with the fact that we create something that we can trust in, that we have made. It's exactly that we have made it. Not that idolatry says, well, this is God, and we, we can worship Him because it is bigger than us. No, idolatry is not about that. Idolatry is not about worshipping something that's bigger than us. It's, idolatry is worshipping the best that we can do the best that we can do to secure ourselves, the best technology. We idolize people. We idolize power. We idolize powerful people. We idolize 
celebrities. We idolize these people. They represent, they symbolize the best that humans can do. We idolize our parents. We idolize our mentors. We idolize people who are very good at particular things because we put our trust in them. When they are not there, we feel insecure. But God called us to live in a sukkah, to live in an impermanent structure that's flimsy, so that the excellency of the power will be focused as, and, 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 and become the locus in God. He called us not to depend upon the best security we can, we can make. And that's one of the things that, uh, um, that idolatry uh, uh, is a spirit of. This idolatry has to do with the fact that it is man-made. Idolatry is not transcendent. It is man-made. It is our best things. It is the things that we are jealous about others about. This, it's seen in sport. It's seen in, in, in art. It's seen in, in, uh, in, in academics. It's seen in professional life. It's seen in finance. It's seen in church. It's seen in, in, in relationships that we have. You can idolize a person. You can make a person and influence that person and then idolize that person, not because you think that person is transcendent, but because of the fact that you idolize the work of your hands because they reflect on you. Idolatry is something that God says you have to flee from. You have to flee from that tendency to do that. Okay? Alright. Now, there's another aspect of idolatry that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. It says... They all ate the spiritual food, okay? But in eating the spiritual food, they mixed it up with the food of idolatry, okay? And so it says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down after they had made the golden calf and said, this is the one that brought you out of Egypt. This will take you into the promised land. This will lead you through the wilderness, there was that aspect, but there's this other aspect and that has to do with eating and drinking and rising up to play and sexual immorality. And therefore, he says in verse 14, flee from idolatry. You see, when Paul says, I'm telling you this so that you will not desire sin, he's speaking out of the new covenant. He's speaking out of the covenant that, had made, that we have made in which we've been baptized into Moses. Christ has not only died for our sins juridically, but he has died for the power of our old man. He has died, he has killed our desires. We still experience it, but their power has been broken. It can be broken in such a way that we have no desire for evil. Now I sense that there are many of us who have struggled, struggled with this, and their struggle is, I desire evil. I desire evil. I can't help it. I want the, those evil things. We live in a sexualized uh, uh, society in which people want those things. And we, we are experiencing a, 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 a kind of a pandemic of sexual sin that people are falling into. And yet Paul says, I don't want you to desire that. And so I can see here Christians saying, how can you say that? I can't help it. I can't help desiring it. Is my Christian life always going to have to be a, a killjoy? I'm going to have to kill that and kill that and kill that? No. What Paul is saying is this. You've been baptized into Christ. You died. That power, it's there. 
It's there, but its power has been broken in you. You, you are free from it. And if you wait, and you wait like the children of Israel were supposed to wait for Moses, you wait upon him and feed on me and feed on me and continue to praise me, you will find that at a certain point it will go. It is almost as if you keep on rising and rising and suddenly its gravitational pull is gone. And that's why he says, flee idolatry. Why Paul is saying is this, when you get too close to it, when you get too fascinated by it, it pulls you in. Just like Lot, he was fascinated by Sodom and Gomorrah and, he, and it says that he parked himself just outside the city. A few more chapters and you see he's in the city. In fact, he belongs, he's an integral part of the city at the gates right there. And what Paul is basically saying is this, we, in spite of all that Christ has done, because of what he has done, we actually can experience no longer the gravitational pull of sin, of idolatry. Not only the, the sin of, uh, the, the idolatry of wanting to have security, but also the idolatry of desiring evil things. And what Paul is saying is this, you are free from this. But if you look, and if you get fascinated by these things, and you allow those things to capture your imagination, you are putting yourself into their clutches. And they have gravity, just like gravity on the earth is comprehensive in its power over people. But you don't, you can be actually pulled into the gravitational pull. I want to put it to you that in the sukkah, in order for us to experience the food of God's power, you have to let go of the food of idolatry. The food of sometimes what uh, theologians call, uh, philosophers call concupiscence, of anger, of passions, of sexual uh, immorality, of that fascination with pride, with, with things that actually have power over you. And he says, you know what? You can be free from the desire because as you fill yourself with God, the desire for these things actually will not be there. The desire for revenge, the desire to, 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 to stick one back to the person who hurt you, it actually can be healed. Not only that, here's a warning. Flee idolatry. Run away from it. Don't take it on. Don't allow fascination with that thing to happen because it will draw you in and have a power over you. Let us pray. We welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. If you've never known victory over sin, victory over the devil, and victory over evil desires, I want to let you know, and you, you can just receive it and thank him for it, that when Christ died on the cross, he broke the power of these evil desires. If you are one who has found that you've looked to people or things for your security in the midst of anxiety and that waiting has been a hard thing for you, I believe we're at a moment where God is here to set you free and to transfer you from the kingdom of evil desire to the kingdom 
of righteousness, peace, and joy. Mm-hmm. Give your life to him right now. Receive from him. I'm going to pray a prayer, and then Cindy and I are going to pray for you. And that prayer is one in which, if you agree with it, it can be a prayer you can pray to God, a prayer in which you renounce evil desire and idolatry. Lord Jesus, I do want the life that you have come to give. I want my sukkah to be filled with you, with the thunderous power of yours, to heal, deliver, and to enrich. I want that. My sukkah has been filled with evil desire. It's been filled with uh, hankering and insecurity. I thank you, Lord, that just as you... Dis- you um, Um, baptized Israel in the Red Sea and under the cloud, you have done a greater thing. You have baptized me into you, Christ. And I receive your nature. I receive your spirit right now. I want to live for you and not for myself. So come into my heart, Lord, and set me free. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just thank you right now that you are so powerful, Lord Jesus, that you broke the power to idolize things, to idolize that which is all available through you. God, those things that show us that we're accepted and we're acceptable. We thank you that you told your son, as you tell us, when he came out of the Jordan, he was taken to the desert. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We speak that over every person in ourselves right now, that we are your children in whom you are well pleased, and we do not need to make our own lives, but we only need to follow you. Yes, I just have a sense right now in this age of narcissism that many of us are trained to sometimes um, create ourselves to be idols, that mm-hmm. America's idol uh, we want to be America's idol or Malaysia's idol or whichever, the world's idol. But, Lord, we say, God, there is no one yes, like Lord. you. We are embarrassed, Amen, God, Amen. that we could ever think of ourselves so highly that it would take our eyes off of you, the beautiful one. So would you just fix our eyes right now? You are the lover of our souls. How bizarre that we would look at ourselves when we can look at you. So we ask right now for those, God, who so long to hear you speak your acceptance that they would not look to themselves anymore, not learn, look to create it, but look to you in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. I also sense right now, and we pray for companies, God, that have tried to be the bedrock of society and have not allowed themselves to go through the, the normal death process. We ask right now any principality and power over these companies right now that lead us along that you would just put them to rest right now. Would you put them to rest and let the spirit of Christ come into the companies right now? Yes, Because you, Lord, you, Lord, are the real foundation of our nation and every nation and not these companies. Thank you. Amen, Lord. We give to you the idolatry of our own self-image that we have been working hard to craft and we say, Lord, you have even better than that. And so we put it to you, Lord. Put it to rest, and we ask you that you will resurrect whatever you want to resurrect right now. We thank you, Lord. You take our talents, our gifts, and our powers and put so much more into it, Lord. So we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Amen.